Does America's social safety net need to be reinvented? Let's learn together. Welcome. I'm Samantha Deliberti, founder of the social impact hub, Orange You Going, and this is Progress Through Purpose. Progress Through Purpose helps you discover issues you're passionate about, like the environment, social equality, affordable housing, and more, and makes it easy for you to affect change while connecting with like-minded New Yorkers in person. Learn from experts working on the vital issues impacting the largest city in the U.S. and hear the solutions they propose. Then meet us in person. Join the Og Squad, a community of changemakers who meet to affect change together. Build new friendships, expand your network, and advance your career through civic engagement, all while uplifting our city. Learn more about the movement at orangeyougoing.com. Hey, Og Squad. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're talking with Alan Mucatel, who is the executive director of the nonprofit Rising Ground. Alan has served in his role since 2009, more than doubling the organization in size, impact, and budget. Today, Rising Ground supports more than 25,000 children, adults, and family members across New York City and Westchester County with programs that range from foster care and family services to special education and sanctuaries for unaccompanied migrant youth, and so much more, as you will hear. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Samantha. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Rising Ground offers a lot of different programs, some of which I just mentioned. In addition to what I mentioned, Rising Ground also operates things like family resource centers, and it supports homeless youth and operates juvenile detention placements. But before we get into the specifics of some of those programs, can you just talk a little bit about what connects all of these different programs together? And why is one organization doing so many different things? Well, uh, I think it's good to have a good connection to the history of the organization. It's, it's founding in 1831, so some 190 years ago as an orphanage, where it became very clear that this organization wanted to be on the forefront of helping New York City children, adults, and families in whatever was the appropriate way for the time. And as times have changed, so has Rising Ground. And we have adjusted and adopted and adapted to the needs of the communities that are seeking our support and services. And because of that, we have added and at some points actually stopped services that are reflective of what our community's needs are. And that's how we have built this wide array of supports that you have already started to touch on. What connects them all is a belief that all people can move upward and forward in their lives when provided uh, equal opportunity and the supports they need, and that all of us can have successes in whatever way we define. And as a result of our very broad array of work, we're able to draw from our experiences in different areas to complement the work that we're doing elsewhere. So can you talk a little bit about the traditional safety net model, how that operates, and why does that need to be changed? Why is it not working? So I think you're, you're reflecting your, when you say the original safety net not model, that was when we talk about that history here at Rising Ground, that, that initial beginning, which relied specific, exclusively on charitable organizations, usually in the beginning of American history, they were faith-based organizations to take care of our communities, children, adults, families who were in various needs. Over many years, our perspective on how we assist our community members has changed and government has become the key funder and driver 
of so many of the services. And that's true not only here at Rising Ground, where we are partners with city government here in New York City, in state government, New York State, and then also federal government in the delivery of the services that we provide. I think there are other changes that have taken place as well in terms of how we also think about services today. For example, and it's true here at Rising Ground, we are much more today than in the past focused on making sure that the voice and choices and desires of the persons receiving services are the things that actually drive services, not some preconceived notion of what how we want to help them, but what is the help that they are seeking. And also in making sure that we are using supports that have been proven to be effective. And so those are things I think that are driving the change that we see and continue to see in the past several decades, and I think that we'll see into the future. So can you expand a little bit more on what you mean when you say we're giving the services and the help that people want versus what we think that they want? Is there an example of that where, you know, maybe you've seen social services do something in the past that they have since changed? Oh, I, 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 it's your question almost invites a flood of response. And so I'll try to, to, narrow, <laughs> okay, to narrow it down. So let's just say, for example, I'll just start in our notion of supports for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, something that's ha- that is, exists across our country. Today, we're not just designing models that said, okay, come to this day program or live in this residence that's going to be going to work for all individuals. Instead, there are individual planning sessions and discussions that happen continually with an individual that says, what is it that you want to, what do you want in your life? Somebody says, listen, I want to, I really am interested in gardening and I, you know, or flowers. And ideally, I would love to work in a, in a florist. So then our job is to help them obtain the skills to do that kind of work and to help them make the connections if they need the help to realize that dream of, of working in a florist. Another example would be when we are in the child welfare space and we have, we're working with families that have been under an array of stressors and there are challenges that have existed that have created greater tensions in the family. It's not our job to say to them, this is the way you should parent or this is what your family should look like, but instead to help them find and identify not only the strengths that they have and every family and every person has strengths, but to ask them where they'd like to see their family go, what help they need to get there, and to encourage them both along the path, the way and remind them of those strengths if they have lost sight of them. So very, very different idea of how we approach two big portions of the work, child welfare and services to intellectual developmental disabilities. But even you've mentioned our family resource center, for example. There Individuals come to us and they tell us what their needs are. So we have come to realize that families need a lot of help with identifying affordable childcare or, and also working on resume writing and job searching skills. So those have become greater portions of what the work that we do in the Family Resource Center because that's what people are showing up and asking. So our work is both specifically directed by the individuals in the plans that they create for themselves, and then globally as in how we design, for example, the Family Resource Center to anticipate the needs that are coming our way. And I mean, for childcare, for example, I think that is an issue that many families deal with, right? It's not just an issue for um, low and moderate income families, but 
I'm wondering if your services are ever limited just by what is happening in the world, right? If somebody needs to find a home and rents are too high, or if someone needs childcare and childcare is the cost of another rent, like how does the organization help people in a city that can be extremely expensive? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, I would say some of our services are not open to the to everyone. For example, our foster care services only designed for individual or for families where there has been a child removal from the home and therefore they are placed with us. But other of our services are available and accessible to members of the community. One of the things that we designed is an access and referral department, specifically because we came to realize that lots of families are turning to us, individuals are turning to us for assistance, and we needed to be able to be more direct and focused and able to, able to assist them. And I'm going to connect that specifically to your point about the challenges that exist in an expensive city and the limited resources that are out there, for example, in house, for housing. So through this access and referral department, we're making certain that when somebody reaches out to us, whether it's a support or service that we can provide to them, or it's a support or service that somebody who's already receiving some help from Rising Ground, but can be linked to something else that we're doing, Or if it's somebody who reaches out to us and it's a service or support that we don't actually do, we can link them to other providers and other community needs. I'll give an example. If somebody was looking for supports and services for a senior, we don't, that's not an area of expertise for rising ground. We'll connect them to partners who we know in their community who can assist them. Specifically to your question about the challenges that exist when there are, when we're talking about not only poor people, but but middle-income people who are struggling to make ends meet, that does make the work harder. And it means that we have to continue to be persistent in helping to identify where there are resources that can be had. One of our values as an organization is tenacity. And uh, we celebrate every one of those victories when we're able to help somebody find something that is harder to find. And we stay with them until they do. And that when we learn through those experiences, let's say we were able to find a landlord that was able to be more helpful in a situation, we take that information and we bring it back to this access and referral space within our organization so that another case planner or case manager or social worker somewhere else in our organization will turn to that resource first if it's viable. Yeah, that idea of tenacity, I think, is really important because when you're reading about these issues in the news, for example, it just feels like it's this overwhelming issue, you know, whether it's homelessness or food insecurity. But it is important to remember that, you know, these nonprofits like yours are doing life changing work. And so when you get somebody housed or you get someone that meal or whatever it is, I mean, that changed that person's life. And that has a a ripple effect, right, on that person's immediate family and their other relations. And so I do think that idea of celebrating each and every win is really important. And that is really something that we try to talk about at Orange U going a lot because it can feel like one person can't make a difference, but truly one person can. And making a difference in one person's life is vitally important and does have larger larger impacts on the city. So I, I just wanted to really highlight that. I really like that word of tenacity. So when we talk about social services, there's a lot of trends that are coming up, and I'm hoping you can maybe just explain a little bit of what these different thoughts and approaches are. So for something like, what do we mean when we talk about a 
program being community-based versus, or maybe in addition to, preventative program? And what is it, why is it so important that the race and culture of the people that we're helping are, is reflected in the people who are offering the help? Can you just kind of break down what this kind of new approach is to social services? For sure. And maybe at some point we can also talk about not just the, the difference between that, creating that foundational support that you we were just talking about and helping somebody with a meal or with housing, but also about advocacy work to make systemic change possible. But to your question right now, to begin, the way that people are most often comfortable in connecting to receive assistance is from people who they can relate to. Now, how we phrase it, whether it's in our own life, right? If you, you might go to a friend because you think that particular friend can appreciate your issue or challenge or problem, right? And so when you're talking about in here in a professional setting where we're providing uh, professional services to individuals, whether we're talking about teachers or clinicians or paraprofessionals who are, are assisting as well, people are, we know are more comfortable with people with whom they can relate. And so that means that it's beneficial to have staff that reflect the communities that we serve. At Rising Ground, 90% of the people who work for us are people of color and come from the very communities that our services are based in. And that has helped us to be successful in many ways. One of the, I wouldn't want to use the word trend, but to say one of the things we have learned more as a human services field is the benefit of having people with lived experience engaged in the work. That's something you see, for example, in the substance abuse field. That's not a field, for example, that Rising Ground is particularly focused in, but it's often been the case that people who have had substance abuse issues have gone on to work in the field. In our environment, where we employ a lot of people with lived experience, it really pops up everywhere. I'll give you a couple of examples. When we're doing work with young people who are court-involved, we have individuals who we call credible messengers. That might be uh, men and women who themselves, when they were younger, had been involved in the criminal justice or juvenile justice system. They're able to connect and relate to young people with the experiences that these young people are having at the moment, not only about what has just happened or whether in, they had a court or had served a sentence, but also the challenges they are having right now as they are trying to redirect their lives away from the path that they had been in, who understand the challenges in their homes or in their communities that they are struggling against. That work is immensely effective by having individuals with lived experience. Another example are parent advocates that we have assisting families, specifically parents, in the foster care system. So these are adults who themselves at some point in the past were involved in the foster care system. They may have had, specifically they've had a child removed from them at some time. The foster care system is a very scary place. It can be very bewildering for someone to have not only lost their, had their child removed, but they're now engaged with the court and with caseworkers and there's rules and things happening all the time that are very intimidating and confusing. Who better to help them in a moment to sort of have some clarity and to feel that they're not alone than somebody who has been through that experience themselves? Get the most of Orange You Going, New York's social impact hub. 
When you join the Og Squad for free, you receive event notifications curated to your interests. Never miss a change-making event. Aren't you going to be there? I think your point about being able to relate to the person that is offering help is incredibly important, but also it's very common sense, right? Of course, I'm going just as an individual, I'm going to listen to somebody who has been there, right? Wherever there is. And so it makes complete sense to me that that would just have that relatability is vital to making sure that somebody feels comfortable and feels like they're able to actually trust the person who is giving them the advice, you know, or giving them the assistance. So let's get into this idea of the massive systemic change that you mentioned. What is some of the work that Rising Ground is doing, not only to help the individual, but as you mentioned, to make systemic change? So first of all, I, the words you used when you said common sense are really important. I think when you speak of human services, the work that we're doing is often not so radical. It's often very basic. And that's we should acknowledge that and lean into it. We are all of us need assistance in various ways and different times. And that is very, very common for all of us. When we at Rising Ground, when I think about our name, Rising Ground, I think about helping people to move upward and forward in their lives, that notion of rising, and by doing so by creating a foundation from which to grow, that ground perspective. So when we think about assisting children, adults, and families, it's not just with an immediate need, but in helping to identify either services or uh, work on skills that will enable them to continue forward in a path, the path of their choosing, long after their time with Rising Ground has ended. In addition to that, while it is true that, and I want to encourage all of us to think about that the ways in which we help others have this wonderful ripple effect, they not only assist in a moment, but they help to encourage and create well, they encourage us all in, as we go forward, but they also raise up all of us in a better sense of community. But it doesn't stop there. We need to think about the systems that exist that we're all functioning in, whether it's an education system or a child welfare system or the economy around us or public policy, whatever it may be, that is contributing to the challenges that many of our neighbors face and degrading life for all of us. And so here at Rising Ground, while the primary work for us is direct social services, we don't operate in a vacuum. We are very much advocating through associations that we are part of individually as we're out there, encouraging our staff and the people we support to be engaged in the community, reflecting on what experiences they're having, what the work may be, and bringing that in their voice as they're in pushing for change. And so that could be, like I said, on in the education front or how we share information and advocate around support for survivors of intimate partner violence. All of that is wrapped up in our sense of how to make change possible for all New Yorkers. So I'm most familiar with Rising Ground's work in juvenile justice. And I know that there was a lot of work done at the state level to change the juvenile justice system. And I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about Rising Ground's role in offering these placement centers for youth, and then also what the role of Rising Ground was in making that systemic change. Because I think that's just a really great example of some of the advocacy work that your organization has been able to do. And it's had 
statewide implications, which is phenomenal. Yeah, there are two components of that that I think are important to reflect on. One has been about raising the age of criminal responsibility so that as we we all should be aware that, uh, and when we think especially as adults and think back about our own personal development, there's a lot of research out there that tells us that the human brain is not fully developed and formed until something like age 26 or so. And that when we think about the choices and decisions that young people are making without giving a framework as to where they are in their development, we are really selling selling them short by being punitive in the way we approach them. And so one of the pieces that's been an important part, I think, of where New York has head has certainly been about raising the age of criminal responsibility. Another part of it, which has been something called close to home, which was about realizing that when we young people are court involved and we are quick to put them in residential settings, prison in places that are far from their homes, all we're doing is disconnecting them from the very community in which we want them to be a part of. That's going to be the source for their taking a path away from connection. And that was, there's a lot of work done to say, let's keep young people closer to their homes, closer to their families. Let's also not place them in these institutional settings, which are dehumanizing and frankly, in only encourage the development of, of non-pro-social behaviors. But instead, let's develop alternatives. If they are going to be in a residential setting that is smaller, that is home-like, that is close to their families, communities. Rising Ground provides some of those services, including non-secure placement programs and limited secure placement programs that are community-based. And we have a remarkable, had remarkable success in working with, with young people and their families to help them choose a, a new path for themselves and that we provide a lot of evidence-based aftercare services as well. In addition to that, there's been a lot of work done by us and others on standing up alternatives to placement and alternatives to detention. So that is that realization that young people need not actually be in these settings in the first place, that we can provide uh, supports to them and to their families, often again through evidence-based models that can assist them in moving forward in their lives, again, in a pro-social way. Rising Ground has both a provider of all these services. We've been at the table with many, many others who have really recognized that the way forward for the, this next generation is of young people is t- to make these changes happen and is not to be as focused on these very harsh, punitive uh, practices. They don't, they're not successful. That is not how we're going to change things. And I should also mention that we, like others, are also very focused on restorative practices, which is really about having a person who has done some wrong to engage with those, if they're willing, those who have experienced that wrong to make things right. And that those type of, that type of work is more healing and more successful in the long run than, than the root. 
Right. Again, it's very common sense, right? When you kind of put it into words, it sounds like, of course, we would want to keep a child near their family instead of sending, you know, a kid from the Bronx up to upstate New York, right? Like, but somehow it has required a lot of work from organizations like yours to make that case and to make that happen. So looking ahead, what are some of the things that Rising Ground is thinking about or advocating on from a, you know, policy perspective or, you know, what else needs to be done, I guess, is the question for New York City to make it a more equitable place? Well, that is a, that's a very big task for sure. I think right now, I'd have to say, although it seems uh, when you ask this question about what are we advocating for, and I'm, I'm about to give an answer that is actually internal, but I, I think it is important. One of the main concerns that is impacting the nonprofit human sector today in New York City and New York State is our workforce. We are all unable to deliver fully on our desire to provide the supports that people need, the services that people need, when we're unable to bring on individuals to do the work itself. And that has to do with the kind of funding that we receive, the salaries that people are being paid. And we know there are a lot of pressures to raise salaries in other fields like the fast food industry or whatnot, where people can be making more even than some of the direct line staff that work in organizations like ours. And so one of the things I think that we need to be putting out there is that, and and this is really important, until we as a society actually recognize fully the value of the people that we are supporting, typically poor people, people of color, women, LGBTQ individuals, until we recognize that we societally are not valuing them and how we know we're not valuing them is we are not investing in these services. In a society like ours, we know how much something is worth by how much we're willing to pay for it. And right now, we need to do some hard looking at what are we paying for for these services? Why are we not investing richly in them? What is the way in which government contracts with organizations like ours in a way that makes it possible for us to continue to be successful? We already know that so much of the work that is being done in any one of these fields, whether it's in the work of intimate partner violence or special education or child welfare or juvenile justice or even support to unaccompanied migrant children. We know what success looks like. We have successes all the time. We celebrate them every day here at Rising Ground and I know at other places just like us. And we need to invest deeply in that. And that is how we're going to make change possible in terms of the supports and services that people need and they want. And that will be will lead to life affirming changes. And so I would start by saying that that's where we need to put a lot of our efforts because the system itself at the moment, the the levels of supports that are out there are really struggling. Right. It's this idea of really putting your money where your mouth is, you know, not just saying you want to help, but actually giving the resources that are needed to help. And can I ask, in terms of funding, you mentioned, you know, the role of government. Is most of the funding that Rising Ground receives government funding or is it a mix, you know, coming from other places as well? So at Rising Ground, the vast majority of the funds that we receive are from government. However, private support is the most critical funds of all. And why is that? Even if it's not the most, it is the part that makes it possible for things to happen. 
right? There's always shortfalls in government funding. There are ways in which we look to bolster the work that's happening. And so in all of us, for all of us, like in, in your own household, having the, the, the basic amount of money, that's great. But then you're like, oh, but I need to do X. And you can't do X because you're missing that extra, the last $5, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so fundraising is critical in nonprofit human services work. It's sort of the, the piece that makes it possible for organizations like ours to innovate. And I'll give you an example of an innovation. One of the things we're doing right now and I'm very proud of is that we have launched a co-parenting initiative in our family foster care program. That is the idea of helping to reshape the notion of the role of a foster parent, not only as someone who cares for the child in their, who they're, who's in their home, but who is working with the parent, the biological parent, to ensure that they're engaged in every aspect of their child's life while the child is in foster care, to share with the foster parent the things that they're learning about the child, to share with the, with the birth parent the their own skills as a parent so that when the child is returned to their home, the family is more successful in their permanency going forward after they leave foster care. We could not make that program and that work possible without private support. And so organizations like ours are counting on private dollars all the time to make things like that happen. That really is a brilliant program because I think what Someone who is raised in a peaceful household doesn't necessarily realize as they say, oh, well, you know, you were maybe beaten as a child or you were yelled at. There's a lot of screaming in your household. Wouldn't you grow up and be the person who does the opposite of that? Wouldn't you? You know how bad it feels. Wouldn't you do something else? But the fact of the matter is that you don't know any differently. And so you have to learn those behaviors in order to do different. And having that modeled for you is it's just that's just a brilliant program. I love that. So I know we're, we're running short on time. So let's get into what is your call to action for our listeners and how can people support Rising Ground and get involved with your organization? Well, th- thanks for getting to this point and, and inviting us to ask others to help us as they can. Uh, first, I want to put out there our website is www.risingground.org www.risingground.org. And there is a tab on the top right that allows for individuals to both get involved, you can find that, get involved, or donate now. In our case, we have a number of volunteer opportunities that we're looking for, and that could be helping to make the backyard space in our runaway and homeless youth program more beautiful or organizing, preparing Mother's Day gift baskets that we give out in our mother-child programming. Or in the fall, we do uh, back-to-school drives to make it possible for kids to start off this academic year strong and in the right position to learn. It's about to be the holiday season. We're going to be giving out 5,000 gifts to children, and we need help with that. We need help with Thanksgiving food drives at our family resource center. And we also need funds to make possible the kind of innovation, like I just explained, like the co-parenting work. We are, would welcome the support of any of our neighbors in any of those things or in any other ways they think they can help us. And to do that, we just ask that you go to our, our website, risingground.org. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing all of the work that you do. And thank you to your team for the amazing work that you do. You're obviously making a difference in many, many people's lives in many different ways. So New York is very lucky to have you. Thank you so much. And thank you for allowing us to be with you today. Are you hosting a social impact event? 
post it for free on orangeyougoing.com to reach the most engaged New Yorkers. When you post with us, we promote it to our email list of nearly 10,000 subscribers across social media and on orangeyougoing.com. Let's engage New Yorkers together.